We'll hear argument next to number 95-960-94. The spectators are admonished not to talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. We'll hear argument next to number 95-60-94. Regents of the University of California versus John Doe. Mr. Miller, you may proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The issue presented for review in this case is whether the 11th Amendment immunity is lost if the state or a state entity has a claim for indemnification or reimbursement for any judgment entered against it. Here, the potential indemnitor is the United States Department of Energy. The issue arises in the context of a breach of contract action brought in federal court on diversity grounds for the plaintiff is a citizen of New York. And thus, the issue does not implicate the question of the scope of the 11th Amendment that the court has focused on in a number of cases, most recently in the Seminole Tribe case of last year, for even under the most narrow view of the scope of the amendment, the question presented in this case would need to be addressed. The Ninth Circuit Court held that the university lost its immunity in this case because in this particular case it had a claim for indemnification against the United States Department of Energy. The core error of the court below was its premise that in each case involving a state entity, the court can consider and parties can litigate the question of the payment source that would be used to satisfy a judgment that might be entered in that particular case. Nothing in the court's 11th Amendment cases supports that view, and we believe it is inconsistent with the terms, the meaning, and the purpose of the 11th Amendment. The core purpose of the 11th Amendment is to withhold jurisdiction from federal courts and to withhold the exercise of federal judicial power against the state in respect of that state's sovereignty. Under the Ninth Circuit approach, federal judicial power is potentially exercised against the state or its entity in virtually every case or any case in which a plaintiff alleges that there is some payment source for the judgment that might be entered in the case that would satisfy the judgment and that would avoid payment of that judgment directly from the state treasury. Mr. Miller, I want to make sure I understand one thing. I take it that it's your position that this reference to a source of indemnity is simply irrelevant as a matter of law, that there is no circumstance in which that should be taken into consideration in order to determine the 11th Amendment status of some supposed arm of the government. Yes, Your Honor, with this one qualification. We acknowledge that at some point any entity, not the state itself, may have to be subject to a determination as to whether it is a state entity for 11th Amendment purposes, and it would be looked at with its overall character. If in some case there were an agency of the state which was entirely supported by indemnification from an outside source like the federal government in that hypothetical situation, conceivably the 
factor of indemnification would be relevant. Well, are you assuming in, in the hypothetical that you raise, are you assuming in that case uh, that the state treasury uh, or, or state funds, quote unquote, could never be reached and that the only funds that could be reached would be those of the third party non-governmental indemnitor? In fact, Your Honor, yes and beyond that. Uh, that the entity was established on the premise okay. that it's f the state funds would never be reached. So that's, that, in, in other words, that doesn't really qualify, I take it, your answer, because your answer is, on the assumption that state funds are, are reachable, at least in theory, the existence of a third-party indemnitor is irrelevant as a matter of law to the 11th Amendment determination. Yes, Your Honor. That's okay. the position, whether it's an indemnification an insurance claim, a possible claim over against a third party, a possible joint tort fees, or anything of the sort. None of those possibilities, we say, should be relevant, and yet the Ninth Circuit Court decision would seem to make any one of those possibilities relevant to a determination in a particular case as to whether a state entity would be entitled to 11th Amendment immunity. There was discussion in, in the Hess case uh, of the potential for uh, judgments to, to reach or not reach the state treasury. We seem to think that was important in the Hesse case. Uh, why is that not important here? Uh, two reasons, Your Honor. In, first, in the Hess case, the inquiry that the court made was whether that by state entity there, the uh, PAC, or, uh, had been established by the two states involved, New York and New Jersey, with an intention that those states be responsible for its various debts. And in that case, the court looked at that overall structure and concluded that the states did not intend their treasuries to be responsible. So, so you're saying that the discussion there simply was a way for us to inquire or measure uh, the connection between the bi-state entity and, and, and the state? Yes, Your Honor. In fact, that was the standard that the court announced when it uh, made that, uh, when it took those factors into account. The court Mr. Miller, was an antecedent to getting to that in the Hess case, that we were dealing with an entity that had not simply two states as creator, but the federal government as well, and then said there is a presumption that such an entity, founded by three sovereigns, does not wear the mantle of a state. And maybe that presumption is undone if the states are legally obligated to pick up the tab for it. And but that, is, that is absolutely right, Your Honor. That was going to be my second point, that the, the court in the Hess case adopted a standard which started with a presumption against cloaking that particular entity with 11th Amendment immunity and required a demonstration that not only the states involved intended for the agency to have their sovereign power, but that the Congress agreed with it. That's not the standard that would apply in judging a, whether an arm of the state is entitled to 11th Amendment immunity. But even under that approach, there have been situations where a bi-state entity has been found to have 11th Amendment immunity. I think of the uh, case in the D.C. Circuit of the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, which uh, Justice Ginsburg's opinion cited in the Hess case, I think. Uh, but that was, again, an application of a special standard for the bi-state entity situation. And in any event, here, there is no legal, uh, there's no release of 
the university from legal liability, as there was in the Hess case. There was no legal liability. There's, that's unquestionably true, Your Honor, and were a judgment to be entered on this breach of contract case, a claim against the university, the university would be legally liable, and all of the consequences that would flow from having had a court make a legal determination uh, of a violation of someone's rights would apply in the case. The university, to be sure, under the contract here, would look to the Department of Energy to satisfy the monetary judgment awarded by the court. And we would hope, in the unlikely event that this occurs, that, that the department would respond. But if it didn't, the university would be on the hook to pay the judgment. In, in these cases involving universities, is it important for us to inquire whether, as a matter of state law, uh, there is sovereign immunity that attaches to the institution? Uh, or is it not important because sovereign immunity can always be waived? Uh, I think it's an element, Your Honor, of the inquiry. The ultimate inquiry, which this court uh, uh, announced in the Mount Healthy case, and I think then repeated again in the Hess case and others, was what is the intention of the state in establishing the entity? Did the state intend this entity to exercise state sovereign powers? Whether that particular entity has state sovereign immunity could be relevant to that inquiry. Uh, in this particular case, there is a general state statute that explains just exactly how and to what extent the state waives its sovereign immunity for itself and its entities, and the reasons of the University of California are explicitly named as one of the entities covered by that provision. Do those statutes, do you think, supersede uh, the California Supreme Court's decision, the 1899 decision where they, in, in, in the Royer case, where the uh, California Supreme Court said uh, that the university, while a governmental institution, is not closed with the sovereignty of the state and is not a sovereign. Do we just ignore that sentence, or has it been superseded by statute? I think that sentence has to be read for precisely what it said. The court preceded it by saying the state is an instrumentality, I mean, the regents is an instrumentality of the state. It is not, however, the state itself. And I think that's what the state, what the Supreme Court was saying. And for that reason, it said, it can be subjected to... Uh, legislative enactments. In that case, it was uh, enactments relating to probate and charitable. Charitable. Haven't we held in in one of our decisions that even though the state may, state law may say it's an entity is suable in state court, that does not conclude uh, the uh, the 11th Amendment inquiry in federal court? Yes, Your Honor. This court has made clear that a, a, a waiver of federal court 11th Amendment sovereign immunity must be explicit and is not accomplished simply by a general waiver. What about the converse proposition? That's not waiver, but could a state, uh, uh, let's take a cement plant as an example, go into the cement business and, and, and create the cement uh, administration entity as an arm of the state and say it shall not be immune, it shall be immune from all suit in federal well, court and also in state court? Yes, Your Honor, I mean, it could. It would have to make a decision that it wants the cement operation to be part of the state government, to be clothed with the uh, rights and uh, attributes of state sovereignty. Is there any federal limit on the extent to which a state can create subdivisions that will be entitled to 11th Amendment immunity? I don't think there are any federal limits, Your Honor, because the whole point here of the 11th Amendment is to respect state sovereignty and the state's decision as to how to organize itself to carry out its governmental functions. And if the state decides, hypothetically, that the operating a soft cement plant is a, is a sovereign function it wants to undertake, 
that decision should be respected. Well, it is not respected in international law anymore. There is an exception to international sovereign immunity with respect to commercial activities of governments, and that may well be extended. I mean, it isn't out of the question that that could be extended to the 11th Amendment as well. Uh, but that's not involved here anyway. Is it? I mean, this is not a commercial not in this case, but I'm happy to yeah. comment on uh, Justice Scalia. I mean, this court has looked at the commercial versus governmental distinction in a number of contexts and has tended to find it wanting in every case. The most prominent one I'm thinking of is the Garcia case where it rejected that basis for distinguishing between functions of uh, governmental entities that would be uh, beyond uh, federal regulation. Of course, if you applied that distinction here, you'd be on the proprietary side of the distinction, wouldn't you? I don't think so, Your Honor, because I think what we'd be looking at would be the uh, university as a whole. And the whole point of this case is that you've got to look at the university as a whole and examine its overall character. And the fact that it happens to have a particular operation that someone might say looks more commercial in nature, just as one might say providing parking lots for the faculty is a little more commercial in nature than governmental. One could break this down and in every case, perhaps, find some basis for arguing that uh, there is uh, an exception to the immunity, and under such an approach, I think the, in the end there would be no immunity because the university and every other state entity would have to defend itself in every case against the contention that in that particular case its functions are not protected by the immunity. And instead of having an immunity from suit, which is what was intended by the 11th Amendment, what you'd have would be... I don't understand that argument. There are clearly some things that the, the, the government would do that are purely governmental, I mean, that carrying out uh, government policy in one way or another. I, I, you're saying that there's, there is no... You're just saying there is no valid distinction between the two kinds of function, and there's a lot of support for that. Yes, Your Honor, and I would say, Justice Stevens, that in the context that we're talking about here, which is how does the state organize itself to carry out functions, I don't think, think there's any evidence that states elect their form of organization or their activities based upon whether the 11th Amendment applies, that no one would make such a suggestion. So if the state, to take your hypothetical, decides to audit all the business. If they go into the cement business, as Colorado did, why they, why they might take that into account? It would be perfectly legitimate. It just, I, don't, I don't know of any evidence that any state, in fact, takes that kind of consideration into account, at least until that evidence was present, it would seem to me not worth distorting the purposes of the 11th Amendment simply to protect against that somewhat unlikely scenario. In any event, Mr. Miller, in this case you're saying that we have to deal with the University of California as an entity and not whatever Livermore Laboratory might be if it were a, a discrete entity. That's correct, Your Honor. And, and you may ask, why is that the case? And my response would be, because the minute you start breaking down the activity of an entity function by function, activity by activity, you are inviting in every case an opportunity for litigation in the federal court as to whether or not that particular entity is entitled to immunity in that particular case. And that series of events has as its ultimate consequence the evisceration of the immunity that the 11th Amendment was intended to present. And it makes no difference whether it's a federal question case or a diversity case like this case, where the issue involved is one of state law. And uh, uh, it seems to us in that situation, the, the cases of this court are clear that the, the entity needs to be viewed as a whole. 
if I may reserve the balance of my time as Chief Justice. Very well, Mr. Miller. Ms. Blatt, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We believe that the Court of Appeals erred for two reasons. First, regardless of whether a state entity has a potential right of indemnity from a third party, the state's sovereign interests are implicated whenever the state has been sued. Second, the Court of Appeals approach creates an unworkable approach to resolving the immunity question. As to our first point, this Court has repeatedly held that the 11th Amendment does not exist simply to protect a state against damages that must be paid out of the state's treasury. It also exists to protect the state's dignitary interest in not being sued by private parties without the state's consent. And it applies regardless of the relief sought. Here, respondent seeks both damages and injunctive relief from the state. The fact that the federal government might be contractually obligated to pay the cost of any judgment in this case does not change the fact that the university has been sued and legally will be responsible for any judgment. Secondly, this case illustrates the problems created by the Court of Appeals decision. The Department of Energy has not determined whether the cost of any judgment in this case would be indemnified under its contract. The Court of Appeals opinion that the Department of Energy must pay those costs is merely advisory as to the department, which is not a party to the case. A binding determination on the indemnity issue will be made by the Department of Energy's contracting officer after he or she reviews the relevant facts and the contract. Thus, you say, you say binding? Uh, is that not, re that'll be reviewable in court, uh, certainly. Yes, under the, under the contract there's an issue resolution process and then it would be appealable to the Energy Board of Contract Appeals or the Court of Federal Claims. You mentioned with respect to the Department of Energy's uh, what, what it assumes, what liabilities it will assume, that that is now uh, undergoing revision. What is the status of the revision that you described in your brief? The final rule has not uh, been issued yet, but the Department of Energy hopes to have it out in the near future. It's just in the form of a notice, and they're assembling responses to the public comments. What would be the principal change from the indemnity as it now exists and it, as it will exist if this rulemaking is final? There's a very significant change in the third-party liability clause. It will now be uh, the burden of proof will be on the contractor to persuade the contracting officer that damages um, were not caused by lack of prudent business judgment by the contractor's managerial personnel. It's both a widening of the scope of the potential contractor's officers that can commit um, misconduct or, if you will, conduct that would result in unallowable costs as well as it's a uh, heightening of the standard. It's no longer willful misconduct or lack of good faith. It's simply lack of prudent business judgment. And the, the Department <coughs> of Energy and the University of California are currently negotiating their contract to begin in the fall of 97. So we'll know then what that clause looks like. Thank you. Um, 
Blatt, does the United States have a position on the question whether the University of Cal the regents of the University of California are an arm of the state? No, other than to assume that they are based on the way the question presented is worded. That if they're otherwise immune as a, as a state entity, the Department of Energy's contractual obligation to indemnify them doesn't change anything because it is the university who is subject to the coercive enforcement powers of the court and in any event may turn around to the Department of Energy and the department may not pay. Ms. Blatt, that, that was the way the question presented was worded, but the Ninth Circuit decision was more diffuse, wasn't it? They said this is one of, uh, they have five-factor tests, and, and we're reviewing that determination. So uh, how, how can we just pick out the neat questions presented and say that's what's before us, when we're reviewing a Ninth Circuit decision that says there are these five factors, add them all up, and we come out um, with not an arm of the state. I think it's a fair characterization of the Ninth Circuit's opinion that what distinguished the university in this situation was the Court of Appeals' view of the Department of Energy's contractual obligations. And our position is not to dispute any of the factors the Ninth Circuit looked at except for this, this, what they relied on, this payment factor that as a an indemnity obligation is solely a matter between the university and the Department of Energy. It doesn't affect the fact that the university is the party against whom judgment is sought. And, and you, you take the position uh, also, I understand, that in, in making the determination uh, of the university's status for 11th Amendment purposes, that the existence of an indemnification agreement as such is simply an irrelevant consideration. That's correct. And you have here... Um, what certainly we did not dispute was that the state of California is legally obligated to satisfy the university's debts based on both the Constitution and the fact that it appropriates significant amounts of money to the university each year. Given that fact, that's where you stop, on your view. Yes, given those facts, if there's a legal connection, a legal liability to the state entity in question, the existence of a, an indemnity agreement with a third party does not alter that entity's status under the 11th Amendment. And that's, again, because the university is on the hook for the judgment, and that third party uh, may, or not, may or may not be forthcoming. And in any event, that doesn't change the relationship between the, the plaintiff, uh, the university as a defendant, and the court um, who can enforce uh, the court's enforcement powers against the university. And in this case, could um, illustrate what could happen is the Court of Appeals' opinion that the university will have the Department of Energy pay its judgment. The university might find itself compelled to pay damages in this case, yet ultimately unable to shift those costs to the Department of Energy. And in our view, that would be impermissible under the 11th Amendment. And that, again, that's because judgment is sought against the state entity. I don't have any more points to make, so is there are no questions. I don't believe my colleagues do either. Uh, hey. <laughs> so, thank you, Ms. Black. Uh, Mr. Gayer, we'll hear from you. <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I may have pleased the court. This is a federal case involving 100% federal money at a federal facility, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory which executes a federal program for an exclusively federal interest, nuclear weapons research. The regents here 
Regents Corporation is not managing a university. It's not even running its hospital. What it's doing is managing the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory as a public service to the nation for, for no loss or gain. That's in page one of the contract, which is not part of the joint appendix. I didn't think we had taken this case to, to, to go into whether, absent the indemnification provision, uh, there is uh, sovereign immunity or not. Uh, you know, there, there are a million different entities, and each one of them have different considerations, and we normally don't take up each case to decide whether the Court of Appeals got it right that applying the normal factors, this was uh, the state or this wasn't the state. I thought the only issue before us here was whether, assuming it is otherwise the state, the indemnification feature makes a change. That's a point of law I think we can grapple with that, that, that has, uh, you know, permanent significance nationwide. Focusing on that narrow issue, which I personally believe that the broader issue is subsumed within the question presented. Well, let's, focusing let's, on the, let's read the question presented. What, what, well, I agree with Your Honor's statement of the question presented. Well, I'd like to focus on that. Here we have something where the, uh, the university is really some sort of facade or a name uh, between the outside world and the federal government. The federal government has made a solemn written promise to pay directly, not to indemnify, not to reimburse, but to pay directly any judgment awarded against the name of well, the university. The university is just a facade, Mr. Gere. Perhaps you, you should sue only the federal government, not the university. Uh, the problem is we have no, go, no jurisdiction in the federal district court uh, over the uh, Department of Energy un, uh, until uh, well, ever, well, and we don't have any jurisdiction in the federal district court over the uh, Department of Energy until and unless such time as the plaintiff in this case gets a judgment against the name of the university. So step one is to sue the university here in U.S. District Court and get a judgment. At that point, we would have a claim but again. But the, the, the university says the court has no jurisdiction over it either because of the 11th Amendment. Obviously, we contend that the university is wrong because there can be no impact on the state treasury. That was the point well, of what, the... What if the university just had a big insurance policy to cover any liability? Uh, Same question? Different answer. There, the university paid for the insurance Therefore, that has an impact on the university's treasury, which happens to be separate and distinct from the state treasury. But that's a different well, situation. They for the government's indemnification promise as well. I mean, you, you don't think that promise is made for free. Yes, it is. The contract would, you know, the, the university would have demanded a lot more money for the contract if that uh, indemnification provision weren't in it. So uh, the payment is, isn't the difference between the two. Uh, Your Honor, I, I would respectfully disagree, because here the university is doing this as a public service. The contract says so. It's true they get a $20 million annual fee for using the name of the university, but this is not a case where there's any connection between this uh, nominal fee uh, uh, and any indemnity or judgment or risk. Do you that they would have demanded much more reimbursement from the federal government if they did not have the federal government's indemnification guarantee? Well, this calls for if my... If they had to be either self-insurers or had to buy insurance from, a, from an insurance company. Well, we can only, Your Honor, we can only speculate on I that. Know. How would you speculate I would speculate that? that the, I would speculate that the university would never sign such a contract. They would tell the Department of Energy to get lost. Because the cost is too high. 
It's too much risk. It's not worth the risk. The, the Department of Energy wants to use the good and prestigious name of the University of California to attract talented scientists, uh, technical professionals, uh, to work on government projects. And the DOE has determined that it's to its advantage to get a prestigious name, and the DOE is willing to pay for it. Aside from the fact that the university would pay for, pri for a private insurance policy, is there any other feature that would distinguish Justice O'Connor's uh, question from, uh, from, the, from the case before us? Thank you, Justice Scalia. Yes, there, there's an important distinction here, I think, that in general, uh, an indemnitor such as an insurance company is quite separate from the contracts say, between the government and, and the Regents Corporation. It would be some outside uh, insurance company that would be agreeing to indemnify. Here, it's the Department of Energy itself for which uh, the Regents is doing the work that is saying, you do this work for us, you run our laboratory, and we'll pay directly any judgment. So there is no uh, outside insurer. So I, I think thought they didn't pay just any judgment, no matter what. Isn't there some provision in the contract for reimbursement that if it's willful misconduct, they won't reimburse? Well, that, that's true. I, I assume that means we're talking about uh, something wherein perhaps uh, an employee of the laboratory engaged in some sort of assault and battery or embezzlement or what have you, something voting on the criminal. But that's neither alleged here, and there's no hint of it here. In the joint of, uh, appendix uh, near the end at page, uh, see if I can find this, I believe it's 82A, uh, we have a letter uh, from the Department of Energy directly to the plaintiffs, uh, dated November 23, 1993, where they make a technical reservation regarding uh, Justice O'Connor's mention of bad faith and willful misconduct. But if you read this in context, knowing that the event sued upon in this case occurred in June of 1991, and this letter was issued approximately two and a half years later, we have a statement that, you know, while we still reserve this business about uh, bad faith, which never occurs, the department is saying we'll bear the cost of defending the university and of any monetary judgment in your favor. Uh, I submit there has not been no uh, hint of willful misconduct or bad faith. It's not alleged. It didn't happen. It's not going to happen. And this is something that, in any event, the Solicitor General, in its brief, says these exceptions are rarely, if ever, applied. Not to worry. So I think, with regard to uh, any arm of the state question, if the, if the Regents Corporation, uh, first of all, has never been established as an arm of the state in any decision by this court, and according to the Solicitor General, the uh, this court has never determined whether any state university or college is an arm of the state for purposes of the 11th Amendment. So I don't think we can just sort of assume that. And what the Ninth Circuit did says, let's look at the facts. We look at the facts and we, see, we assume that a promise made by the federal government in writing is a solemn promise. That the Department of Energy, when it says it's going to pay directly, will pay directly. Uh, why not assume that the government is going to act in bad faith. I think that's a fair presumption. I think it would unduly expand the immunity provided by the 11th Amendment if you could let states structure entities as they pleased, which would be totally commercial, and for which they would have no risk at all 
financially and still give them immunity. I think Mr. Gator, I'd like to know how far your position about a state university goes with respect to insulating the state against any monetary liability for that uh, piece of the university. Let's take an athletic department where they sell tickets to the games and there's a big profit-making center for the university. Um, and a spectator is at such an event, slips and falls, says it's because the stairs were in disrepair, and sues the University of California in federal court, diversity case, um, and the state says, we're the, uh, we're the state university. Under your theory, could the plaintiff prevail by saying, uh, not in this instance, because we've got a money-making venture, uh, and any money that's going to be paid will come out of the profits of that entity? Well, it depends on how the entity is structured. I don't know if this is going beyond uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg's uh, question, uh, but in this particular case, we assume the athletic endeavor, endeavor has no contract with the Department of Energy, and, and there's no pay-directly provision there. It's and, just that the state budget is never going to be touched because this is such a profitable department that it pays all its own bills. Well, I think that's, uh, that's what uh, happened in, uh, in Hess that initially the bi-state entity was receiving something like $100,000 a year from each state, but that was years and years ago. And it was uh, not an entity of any single state. I mean, it was a totally different situation. But according to the uh, dissent in Hess, but the same test applies. You stand squarely with the dissent in Hess. I stand squarely with the entire decision in Hess. But I'm it, it, to you must admit it's rather peculiar to do what you did in your brief, that is to take the essence of what the majority held from a statement in the dissenting opinion? No, I'm trying to harmonize them. Because uh, we, we, in our proposed test, the first thing you look at is the impact on the S-T-A-T-E Treasury. You don't what? agree that in general, to find out what the majority opinion says, one looks to the majority opinion rather than the dissent? Uh, it sounds like a good idea, Your Honor. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's why in our proposed test, uh, we say, first you look to the state tre treasury factor as the majority did in Hess. If that's dispositive of the case, that's At the first, end of the inquiry. The, first, the majority did not do that first. The first thing that the majority said is, this is a creature of three sovereigns. One of them is the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. and, and in any event, uh, as Your Honor pointed out, the, the respondents do uh, rely on Hess, uh, where it said that the twin reasons for being of the 11th Amendment are state treasury and dignity. And... and we take the state treasury factor very important here. That's why we're here. If the state treasury factor wasn't here, we couldn't argue about the pay directly provision. You say that, that you don't take the dignity factor. Well, well yes, we do. Because here, uh, we, we claim that the, uh, uh, the attorneys for the Regions Corporation in submitting for one year to discovery taking depositions, submitting to depositions, answering interrogatories, responding to requests for production of evidence has diluted its dignitary interest, has said in oh, effect... So dignitary interest is one that's that you waive. Without waiving the... You can sort of back into waiving the 11th Amendment? No. Well, you, uh, you weaken your 11th Amendment claim if you, if you act as though you don't mind being coerced by the discovery power of the court. But you don't have any ready appeal from, from a discovery order. 
uh, pre-trial. I mean, the, the uh, discovery order isn't, isn't, isn't appealable as a matter of right. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that's true, but here the, the, the petitioners cooperated with discovery. They didn't say, we have an 11th Amendment dignitary interest, and therefore we're not going to respond to your discovery on the merits. They just went along as this well, ordinary litigation. Isn't that just uh, one form of, of, of good lawyering? You don't have any right to appeal? The, uh, you, either your order to discover, the discovery order makes, uh, the discovery request is reasonable. You, you raise, you raise what you can at, at, at a different time. Uh, uh, with due respect, Your Honor, it's our position that if a purported 11th Amendment entity, uh, takes its 11th Amendment immunity seriously, especially its dignitary interest, that the first thing it will do is move to dismiss based on the 11th Amendment. It won't play around with, with litigation for a year. The, it's also our position that in each case, especially since the 11th Amendment immunity issue can be raised sua sponte by any court at any time, that any time a court, especially the Supreme Court, considers an 11th Amendment case and look at the whole picture. And so whether or not, of course, the university has been held to be an arm of the state in other contexts and other cases that were not in this court uh, doesn't really matter. It's certainly not determinative or dispositive or anything. Uh, I think that each case, as the Ninth Circuit did, looks at the facts, looks at the law as presented uh, by the plaintiff. In our proposed procedure, we suggest that the plaintiff has the burden of inducing facts and law that shows that the purported, that the state entity is not a state agency. That is to say, it's not an arm. Therefore, it doesn't deserve 11th Amendment protection. Otherwise, you run the risk of undue expansion of 11th Amendment immunity and anything that says, of California is immune. And that's the end of it. Now, Justice Ginsburg, I, I was thinking of something about insulating treasuries. And in this case, the state law of California does insulate the state treasury from the regents. Under state of California law, a judgment against the regents can be executed only against the treasury of the regents. There is no claim against a very separate and probably larger state treasury. That applies under all circumstances. So it's our position that even absent the pay directly provision in the contract that the state treasury, as opposed to the region's treasury, the state treasury has no risk at all in any case. And that's so a state university is not an arm of any state if that university has a budget that's discreet and pays all of its expenses out of that. That that's, that's the end of a state university being an arm of the state. Uh, a, a state, a, a treasury, a, state, a, a treasury that's independent and wherein the, the university or college has no claim against the, uh, the treasury of the state itself. In other words, here, the regional treasury has a lot of money in it. I think according to a footnote in the reply brief, something in, in one particular year, $10 billion. Now, in that year, $2.2 billion came in the form of a block grant from the state. The legislature made an appropriation. It gives the money to, re to the regions to use for any lawful purpose. There, after that, the state lets go. The legislature lets go. 
and the regents must make do with whatever money they can get. And most of their money comes from outside the state. But the point is that a judgment creditor of the regents has no claim against the state treasury ever. And that's why I think this, this case... Well, is, do I understand that the, the question that's before us is, even if the university would otherwise be a state agency, it isn't when this particular liability is covered in full by a third party. Yeah, well, I think we've addressed that fully in the briefs and uh, per perhaps this morning. Uh, that's true. But I think in order to do a, a thorough, complete, and meaningful job, uh, this court might consider the general question. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, the courts below are still having to wonder about this fundamental issue. And one can assume arguendo so many things that there's nothing left to argue about. Well, perhaps there would be a problem of parties who are not before us. There must be many state universities that are patterned uh, the same way, intended to have a large budget and to pay their expenses out of that. Uh, my research, although not complete, says the answer to that question, Your Honor, is no. That uh, those cases I, I have read, uh, for instance, uh, the Rutledge case, Rutledge versus the Regents of the University of Arizona, another Ninth Circuit case, uh, uh, held that there, there is control by the legislature. But the, now you haven't been talking about control. You've been talking about does the university have to operate out of a special budget for it with no call on other state funds? Well, the point I'm trying to make is that in the Rutledge case, the Ninth Circuit held that uh, uh, the, the regents there were very different, and they were not separate and independent or and autonomous, whereas in the instant case, the regents are very separate, very independent, and very autonomous of any control by the elected branches of state government. May I, I'd like to make sure I understand one part of your argument. Uh, the Court of Appeals applied this five-factor test, the first factor, whether this money judgment would be satisfied out of state funds, and they said it would not be because of the indemnity agreement. You are arguing, if I understand you correctly, that even without the indemnity agreement, the judgment would not have been satisfied out of state funds. Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. It, it says I could have done a better job in the Ninth Circuit. And so, but so we're not. What's we're only we're only addressing the indemnity question. Or are we supposed to de decide the whole case? I'm still a little puzzled about that. Well, no, I'm not focuses on everything. Focuses on, on point one in their five-factor test. Uh, uh, that's correct. Uh, Does your opponent agree that it would not be satisfied out of state funds even without the indemnity agreement? I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but uh, Your Honor, to, to respond to your question, I'm not an expert on this court's rule 14.1. Uh, but uh, I believe that the general question of the region's overall immunity is subsumed within the question presented. If I'm wrong, uh, I'm sure you're honest to tell me. Subsumed generally means a smaller question included in a larger question. What you're saying is that a larger question is included in a smaller question, which is quite different. <laughs> well, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm here to please the court, and if, 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 if that doesn't do so, I'll just move on. <laughs> I think the point made by the Ninth Circuit in its conclusion is really important. Uh, certainly under its decision, uh, the Regents Corporation would lose very little. They would still retain all the immunity they have 
in Justice Ginsburg athletic event question, and any, certainly anything related to the uh, universities which provide higher education. The uh, only thing they would lose, so to speak, is, is immunity if they're sued uh, in the operation of the laboratory, uh, wherein the owner of the laboratory will pay directly uh, any judgment. That's really no loss because it's not the university's operation. It's really the Department of Energy's operation. It's their facilities, their building, their grounds, uh, everything. And so that there is really no uh, impact at all. Excuse me for being so slow to grasp this, but in the dissenting opinion, the judge, the dissenting judge said no one has disputed that a judgment against the University of California is a legal obligation of the state of California. Is that a correct statement of the case? Well, uh, as it goes, it wasn't disputed. It wasn't even mentioned. Uh, there was no, well, no you argument. Did, did you argue in the court below that even without the indemnity agreement, the judgment could not have been satisfied out of state funds? Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, I was, uh, shall we say, I won't use the, the, the dirty word, but I, that was an omission on my part. Well, you, it, wasn't, it wasn't such a... I mean, it was an understandable omission in as much as the Ninth Circuit had held in a number of cases that, uh, uh, that the uh, state universities were indeed the state for purposes of sovereign immunity, hadn't they? Uh, but those cases are built, I submit, on a foundation of sand. In those I understand, but you didn't want to antagonize the district court and the court of appeals. You were there to please them, just as you're here to please us. And they wouldn't have been pleased if you're calling their whole circuit law into, into question. Well, the, the point is there, the, the issue wasn't fully litigated. In, in one of the cases, the uh, Jackson v. Hayakawa, uh, the Regents Corporation was not even a party. The other cases, BV Engineering, Armstrong v. Myers, and a, a Mascheroni case out of the Tenth Circuit, uh, all those cases simply cited either Jackson v. Hayakawa, where uh, the... Uh, yes, but Mr. Gator, if you did not call into question, I don't think your job is to please the court. Your job is to represent your client. And if on behalf of your client you did not challenge a line of authority in the Ninth Circuit, I'm not sure you can challenge it for the first time up here, despite everybody else is saying how important it is to be friendly to the court. Well, I, I didn't, uh, if I'm wrong, Your Honor, I apologize, but I don't think this court is bound by any decision of the Ninth Circuit or the Tenth Circuit. And if they were wrong, they were wrong. They can't be reversed, I guess. Mr. Gary, this is the point that we review rulings that have been made by a court below. We don't make rulings here in the first place. And, and you are asking us to decide something as though we were a, the court getting this in the first instance. And that is, is not what we well, do. Uh, if that be the case, Your Honor, then I think the, uh, the safest and most appropriate thing to do is simply affirm the uh, judgment of the Ninth Circuit and let us proceed. That, because that, that does apply the five-factor test. It's not contrary to anything in Hess, since it focused almost entirely on the impact of the state treasury. And it has minimal uh, policy impact uh, on the uh, uh, immunity generally of the Regents Corporation. Are you suggesting that if we are of the view that whatever this um, is or is not should not be affected by whether they've got insurance from the government or somebody else, that covers this particular risk, um, this particular liability. As, even if we think uh, that we should nonetheless affirm because the, because the Ninth Circuit used a five-factor test and we don't, we have nothing to say about those other factors. 
Oh, sure. This, this court has everything to say about the other factors. But uh, it's my position that the Ninth Circuit uh, applied the factors correctly and uh, did nothing contrary to this, this court's decision in Hess or any other decision of this court. The, the Ninth Circuit properly distinguished these uh, other opinions of which I disapprove and said on the facts of this case, there's no possible conceivable impact on the state treasury. And, and Justice Canby in his dissent got it wrong. He assumed uh, something that had not been argued at all. Neither side said anything about uh, uh, who would actually bear the burden of the judgment, and he just assumed that the state would do it. Uh, that was incorrect. Uh, once you, you assume that, it's all over. Are you, are you saying it would be irrelevant to the Ninth Circuit where we would say, we think you were wrong, and um, we are telling you you were wrong in one particular it's not relevant whether there was indemnity for this liability. What's relevant is who has the legal liability. If we were to say that, you think that would be, wouldn't make any difference in how the Ninth Circuit came out? If I understand the question, Your Honor, it's my position that since the uh, state of California has no legal liability in this case, that the result would be the same. Now, I've also uh, been lectured by Mr. Chief Justice that that may not be within the question presented. I'll have to accept that. But uh, it, it's still our position, uh, as I've stated, that just uh, Judge Canby is wrong when he said that the state is legally liable. That's simply wrong as a matter of California state law. Uh, Which is the determination you're asking us to make in the first instance? Excuse me, Your Honor? You're asking us to make that determination in the first instance because it certainly wasn't made by the Ninth Circuit or the District Court. Yes, I think the answer is yes, because I think that would be the best way to give guidance to the courts below and to attorneys who might bring a suit uh, against uh, some, purported, uh, some purported arm of the state. Of course, it's very say, helpful. You say it's wrong as a matter of state law. That's, that makes the further assumption that the treasury of the regents of the University of California is not part of the state. And I'm, I'm sure the counsel for the appellants are going to tell us that the whole purpose of the very substantial separation uh, that the California Constitution decrees for the university is to clothe it with uh, attributes of, of sovereignty and to make sure that it is an instrumentality of the state, um, actually separate from the legislative and, and executive branches. But it's so, not so, to, so to say that it's not part of the state's liability um, uh, in, in a way elides the question because the the Treasury of the University of California uh, are state funds in one sense, in well, a very important sense. Well, uh, Justice Kennedy, my reading of state law is that uh, the region's funds are not state funds are in that they're not under the control of the legislature or the governor, any other part of the executive branch. They're in control the of another state entity, which, has to, which happens to be the regents of the University of California. Yeah. And that state entity is not an arm of the state. It's a separate and independent public corporation established to manage the University of California and free to engage in other businesses, such as running a hospital for which it charges a market rate for services and for managing the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Of course, it's a state entity, but it's very independent, and its treasury is separate and apart from the state treasury, and the regions have no claims at all to anything in the state treasury. They get a block grant from the state, uh, from the state legislature once a year, and that's it. If there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Kerr. Uh, Mr. Miller, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. 
I'd like to begin by referring to this, um, if I don't mean to be try to inject too much levity, but the foundation of sand. The foundation of sand uh, starts here because the ultimate foundation is the Hamilton versus Board of Regents case in 293 U.S., where this court determined, uh, based upon a study of the California Constitution and statutes, that the university and its regents were the state, and in fact, that its orders, the orders of the Board of Regents, were equivalent to state statutes and would be deemed the same for purposes of that case. Now, that wasn't an 11th Amendment case, but I do think it's an important decision uh, that uh, was built upon in the decisions in the district courts and in the Ninth Circuit Court that have held in repeatedly that the university is an arm of the state. The, the decision in the Vaughan case, which is cited in our brief district court case, is the case in which the factors were reviewed, and then in the various Ninth Circuit cases, uh, Vaughan and other cases subsequent to Vaughan were referred to and, uh, and relied upon as precedent. The fact that the university is an arm of the state is now beyond serious debate as far as the Ninth Circuit's concerned as a general proposition, and it ultimately rests on the decision of this court in Hamilton. Uh, that leads me to the next point, which is the contention that the university is separate from the state because the state is not responsible for its debts. Uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, you, you um, uh, anticipated our point on this. The treasury of the regents is very much a state fund, and all of the attributes of sovereignty that are given to the regents in the California Constitution and statutes are designed to assure that the regents would be treated as a branch of state government, albeit independent of political control for the very important reasons of academic freedom and independence of education that animated the founders of the state uh, back in the middle 19th century. Not, notwithstanding that, the Constitution of California, Article 16, Section 8, provides a, a, a very special provision for any obligations of state universities. It states as follows, that all, from, from all state revenues, there shall first be set apart the monies to be applied by the state for the support of the public school system and public institutions of higher education. We referred to that in our brief and pointed out that that gives, in effect, a first charge on the revenues of the state to satisfy the obligations of the university. The manner in which that's done is at the same manner in which the uh, Congress uh, funds federal agencies by appropriation. And no doubt, until the appropriation is made, that debt can't be paid if the regions don't have otherwise sufficient funds. But in the end, the uh, legislature is responsible by constitutional provision to meet the obligations of the university, and in that additional way ties the university tightly to the state of which it is a part and an arm, if not a branch. Uh, I want to make just one other point, and that is that the relief in this case seeks not only damages against the university, but also uh, uh, hiring of the plaintiff. He calls it reinstatement. Uh, he never was instated in the first place, so it's really instatement. But one of the he asked for specific performance of the alleged contract, and he asked that in any event that he be hired by the university, or at the very least that his application for employment be reconsidered. Each of those forms of relief, if granted, would work 
Thank you, Mr. Miller. The case is submitted.